Chapter Seven of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording today by Don Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter Seven. Mr. Grice discovers Miss Amelia. To return to my own observations. I was almost as ignorant of what I wanted to know at ten o'clock on that memorable night as I was at five, but I was determined not to remain so. When the two Mrs. Van Burnham had retired to their room, I slipped away to the neighboring house and boldly rang the bell. I had observed Mr. Grice enter it a few minutes before, and I was resolved to have some talk with him. The hall lamp was lit, and we could discern each other's faces as he opened the door. Mine may have been a study, but I am sure his was. He had not expected to be confronted by an elderly lady at that hour of the night. Well, he dryly ejaculated, I am sensible of the honor, Miss Butterworth, but he did not ask me in. I expected no less, said I. I saw you come in, and I followed as soon after as I could. I have something to say to you. He admitted me then, and carefully closed the door. Feeling free to be myself, I threw off the veil I had tied under my chin, and confronted him with what I call the true spirit. Mr. Grice, I began, let us make an exchange of civilities. Tell me what you have done with Howard Van Burnham, and I will tell you what I have observed in the course of this afternoon's investigation. This aged detective is used to women, I have no doubt, but he is not used to me. I saw it by the way he turned over and over the spectacles he held in his hand. I made an effort to help him out. I have noted something today which I think has escaped you. It is so slight a clue that most women would not speak of it, but being interested in this case, I will mention it, if in return you will acquaint me with what will appear in the newspapers to-morrow. He seemed to like it. He peered through his glasses and at them with the smile of a discoverer. I am your very humble servant, he declared, and I felt as if my father's daughter had received her first recognition. But he did not overwhelm me with confidences. Oh, no, he is very sly, this old and well-seasoned detective, and while appearing to be very communicative, really parting with but little information. He said enough, however, for me to gather that matters looked grim for Howard, and if this was so, it must have become apparent that the death they were investigating was neither an accident nor a suicide. I hinted as much, and he, for his own ends no doubt, admitted at last that a wound had been found on the young woman which could not have been inflicted by herself, at which I felt such increased interest in this remarkable murder that I must have made some foolish display of it. For the wary old man chuckled and ogled his spectacles quite lovingly before shutting them up and putting them into his pocket. "'And now what have you to tell me?' he inquired, sliding softly between me and the parlor door. Nothing but this. Question that queer-acting house-cleaner closely. She has something to tell which it is your business to know. I think he was disappointed. He looked as if he regretted the spectacles he had pocketed, 
and when he spoke there was an edge to his tone I had not noticed in it before. "'Do you know what that something is?' he asked. "'No, or I should have told you myself. "'And what makes you think she is hiding anything from us?' "'Her manner. Did you not notice her manner?' "'He shrugged his shoulders. "'It conveyed much to me,' I insisted. "'If I were a detective, I would have the secret out of that woman "'or die in the attempt.' He laughed, this sly, old, almost decrepit man laughed outright. Then he looked severely at his old friend on the newel post, and drawing himself up with some show of dignity, made this remark. It is my very good fortune to have made your acquaintance, Miss Butterworth. You and I ought to be able to work out this case in a way that will be satisfactory to all parties. He meant it for sarcasm, but I took it quite seriously that is, in all appearance. I am as sly as he, and though not quite as old, now I am sarcastic, having some of his wit, if but little of his experience. Then let us to work, said I. You have your theories about this murder, and I have mine. Let us see how they compare. If the image he had under his eye had not been made of bronze, I am sure it would have become petrified by the look he now gave it. What to me seemed but the natural proposition of an energetic woman, with a special genius for his particular calling, evidently struck him as audacity of the grossest kind. But he confined his display of astonishment to the figure he was eyeing, and returned me nothing but the most gentlemanly retort. I am sure I am obliged to you, madam, and possibly I may be willing to consider your very thoughtful proposition later, but now I am busy, very busy, and if you will await my presence in your house for half an hour... Why not let me wait here, I interposed. The atmosphere of the place may sharpen my faculties. I already feel that another sharp look into that parlor would lead to the forming of some valuable theory. You... Well, he did not say what I was, or rather, what the image he was apostrophizing was, but he must have meant to utter a compliment of no common order. The prim courtesy I made in acknowledgment of his good intention satisfied him that I understood him fully, and changing his whole manner to one more in accordance with business, he observed after a moment's reflection, You came to a conclusion this afternoon, Miss Butterworth, for which I should like some explanation. In investigating the hat which had been drawn from under the murdered girl's remains, you made the remark that it had been worn but once. I had already come to the same conclusion, but by other means, doubtless. Will you tell me what it was that gave point to your assertion? There was but one prick of a hat-pin in it, I observed. If you had been in the habit of looking into young women's hats, you will appreciate the force of my remark. The deuce was his certainly uncalled-for exclamation. Women's eyes for women's matters. I am greatly indebted to you, ma'am. You have solved a very important problem for us. A hat-pin, huh, he muttered to himself. The devil in a man is not easily balked. Even such an innocent article as that can be made to serve when all other means are lacking. It is perhaps a proof that Mr. Grice is getting old, that he allowed these words to escape him. 
but having once given vent to them he made no effort to retract them but proceeded to take me into his confidence so far as to explain the woman who was killed in that room owed her death to the stab of a thin long pin we had not thought of a hat-pin but upon your mentioning it i am ready to accept it as the instrument of death there was no pin to be seen in the hat when you looked at it none i examined it most carefully he shook his head and seemed to be meditating as i had plenty of time i waited expecting him to speak again my patience seemed to impress him alternately raising and lowering his hands like one in the act of weighing something he soon addressed me again this time in a tone of banter this pin if pin it was was found broken in the wound we have been searching for the end that was left in the murderer's hand and we have not found it it is not on the floors of the parlor nor in this hallway what do you think the ingenious user of such an instrument would do with it this was said i am now sure out of a spirit of sarcasm he was amusing himself with me but i did not realize it then i was too full of my subject he would not have carried it away i reasoned shortly at least not far he did not throw it aside on reaching the street for i watched his movements so closely that i would have observed him had he done this it is in the house then and presumably in the parlor even if you did not find it on the floor would you like to look for it he impressively asked i had no means of knowing at that time that when he was impressive he was his least candid and trustworthy self would i i repeated and being spare in figure and much more active in my movements that one would suppose from my age and dignified deportment i ducked under his arms and was in mr van burnham's parlor before he had recovered from his surprise that a man like him could look foolish i would not have you suppose for a moment but he did not look very well satisfied and i had a chance to throw more than one glance around me before he found his tongue again an unfair advantage ma'am an unfair advantage i am old and i am rheumatic you are young and sound as a nut i acknowledge my folly in endeavouring to compete with you and must make the best of the situation and now madam where is that pin it was lightly said but for all that i saw my opportunity had come if i could find this instrument of murder what might i not expect from his gratitude nerving myself for the task thus set me i peered hither and thither taking in every article in the room before i made a step forward there had been some attempt to rectify its disorder the broken pieces of china had been lifted and lain carefully away on newspapers upon the shelves from which they had fallen the cabinet stood upright in its place and the clock which had tumbled face upward had been placed upon the mantel-shelf in the same position the carpet was therefore free save for the stains which told such a woeful story of past tragedy and crime you have moved the tables and searched behind the sofas i suggested not an inch of the floor has escaped our attention madam my eyes fell on the register which my skirts half covered it was closed i stooped and opened it a square box of tin was visible below at the bottom of which i perceived the round head of a broken hat-pin 
Never in my life had I felt as I did at that minute. Rising up, I pointed at the register and let some of my triumph become apparent, but not all, for I was by no means sure at that moment, nor am I by any means sure now, that he had not made the discovery before I did and was simply testing my pretensions. However that may be, he came forward quickly, and after some little effort drew out the broken pin and examined it curiously. I should say that this is what we want, he declared, and from that moment on showed me a suitable deference. I account for its being here in this way, I argued. The room was dark, for whether he lighted it or not to commit his crime, he certainly did not leave it lighted long. Coming out, his foot came in contact with the iron of the register, and he was struck by a sudden thought. He had not dared to leave the head of the pin lying on the floor, for he hoped that he had covered up his crime by pulling the heavy cabinet over upon his victim. Nor did he wish to carry away such a memento of his cruel deed. So he dropped it down the register where he doubtless expected it would fall into the furnace pipes out of sight. But the tin box retained it, is that not plausible, sir? I could not have reasoned better myself, madam. We shall have you on the force yet. But at the familiarity shown by this suggestion, I bridled angrily. I am Miss Butterworth, was my sharp retort, and any interest I may take in this matter is due to my sense of justice. Seeing that he had offended me, the astute detective turned the conversation back on business. "'By the way,' said he, "'your woman's knowledge can help me out at another point. "'If you are not afraid to remain in this room alone for a moment, "'I will bring an article in regard to which I should like your opinion.' "'I assured him I was not in the least bit afraid, "'at which he made another of his anomalous bows "'and passed into the adjoining parlour. "'He did not stop there. "'Opening the sliding doors communicating with the dining-room beyond, he disappeared in the latter room, shutting the doors behind him. Being now for a moment alone on the scene of the crime, I crossed over to the mantel-shelf and lifted the clock that lay there. Why I did this I scarcely know. I am naturally very orderly, some people call me precise, and it probably fretted me to see so valuable an object out of its natural position. However that was, I lifted it up and set it upright, when to my amazement it began to tick. Had the hands not stood as they did when my eyes first fell on the clock, lying face up on the floor at the dead girl's side, I should have thought the works had been started since that time by Mr. Grice or some other officious person. But they pointed now, as then, to a few minutes before five, and the only conclusion I could arrive at was— that the clock had been in running order when it fell, startling as this fact appeared, in a house which had not been inhabited for months. But if it had been in running order, and was only stopped by its fall upon the floor, why did the hands point at five instead of twelve, which was the hour at which the accident was supposed to have happened? Here was matter for thought, and that I might be undisturbed in my use of it, I hastened to lay the clock down again, even taking the precaution to restore the hands to the exact position they had occupied before I had started up the works. 
If Mr. Grice did not know their secret, why so much worse for Mr. Grice? I was back in my old place by the register before the folding doors unclosed again. I was conscious of a slight flush on my cheek, so I took from my pocket that perplexing grocery bill and was laboriously going down its long line of figures when Mr. Grice reappeared. He had, to my surprise, a woman's hat in his hand. Well, thought I, what does this mean? It was an elegant specimen of millinery, and was in the latest style. It had ribbons and flowers and bird's wings upon it, and presented, as it was turned about by Mr. Grice's deft hand, an appearance which some might have called charming, but to me it was simply grotesque and absurd. Is this a last spring's hat? he inquired. I don't know, but I should say it has come fresh from the milliner's. I found it lying with a pair of gloves tucked inside on an otherwise empty shelf in the dining-room closet. It struck me as looking too new for a discarded hat of either of the Misses Van Burnham. What do you think? Let me take it, said I. Oh, it's been worn, he smiled, several times, and the hat-pin is in it, too. There is something else I wish to see. He handed it over. I think it belongs to one of them, I declared. It is made by La Mole on Fifth Avenue, whose prices are simply wicked. But the young ladies have been gone, let me see, five months. Could this have been bought before then? Possibly, for this is an imported hat. But why should it have been left lying about in that careless way? It cost twenty dollars, if not thirty. And if for any reason its owner decided not to take it with her, why didn't she pack it away properly? I have no patience with the modern girl. She is made up of recklessness and extravagance. I hear that the young ladies are staying with you, was his suggestive remark. They are. Then you can make some inquiries about this hat, also about the gloves, which are an ordinary street pair. Of what color? Gray. They are quite fresh, size six. Very well, I will ask the young ladies about them. This third room is used as a dining room, and the closet where I found them is one in which glass is kept. The presence of this hat there is a mystery, but I presume the Mrs. Van Burnham can solve it. At all events, it is very improbable that it has anything to do with the crime which has been committed here. Very, I coincided. So improbable, he went on, that on second thoughts I advise you not to disturb the young ladies with questions concerning it further, unless reasons for doing so become apparent. Very well, I returned, but I was not deceived by his second thoughts. As he was holding open the parlor door before me in a very significant way, I tied my veil under my chin and was about to leave when he stopped me. I have another favor to ask, said he, and this time with his most benignant smile. Miss Butterworth, do you object to sitting up for a few nights till twelve o'clock? Not at all, I returned, if there is a good reason for it. At twelve o'clock tonight a gentleman will enter this house. If you will note him from your window, I will be obliged. To see whether he is the same one I saw last night, certainly I will take a look, but... "'Tomorrow night,' he went on imperturbably, "'the test will be repeated, "'and I shall like to have you take another look "'without prejudice, madam, 
remember without prejudice i have no prejudices i began the test may not be concluded in two nights he proceeded without any notice of my words so do not be in haste to spot your man as the vulgar expression is and now good night we shall meet again to-morrow wait i called peremptorily for he was on the point of closing the door i saw the man but faintly it is an impression only that i received i would not wish a man to hang through any identification i could make no man hangs on simple identification we shall have to prove the crime madam but identification is important even such as you can make there was no more to be said i uttered a calm good night and hastened away by a judicious use of my opportunities i had become much less ignorant on the all-important topic than when i entered the house it was half-past eleven when i returned home a late hour for me to enter my respectable front door alone but circumstances had warranted my escapade and it was with quite an easy conscience and a cheerful sense of accomplishment that i went to my room and prepared to sit out the half-hour before midnight i am a comfortable sort of person when alone and found no difficulty in passing this time profitably being very orderly as you must have remarked i have everything at hand for making myself a cup of tea any time of day or night so feeling some need of refreshment i set out the little table i reserved for such purposes and made the tea and sat down to sip it while doing so i turned over the subject occupying my mind and endeavored to reconcile the story told by the clock with my preconceived theory of the murder but no reconcilement was possible the woman had been killed at twelve and the clock had fallen at five how could the two be made to agree and which since agreement was impossible should be made to give way the theory or the testimony of the clock both seemed incontrovertible and yet one must be false which i was inclined to think that the trouble lay with the clock that i had been deceived in my conclusions and that it was not running at the time of the crime mr gryce may have ordered it wound and then have had it laid on its back to prevent the hands from shifting past the point where they had stood at the time of the crime's discovery it was an unexplainable act but a possible one while to suppose that it was going when the shelves fell stretched improbability to the utmost there having been so far as we could learn no one in the house for months sufficiently dexterous to set so valuable a timepiece for who could imagine the scrub-woman engaging in a task requiring such delicate manipulation no some meddlesome official had amused himself by starting up the works and the clue i had thought so important would probably prove valueless there was humiliation in the thought and it was a relief to me to hear the approaching carriage just as the clock on my mantel struck twelve springing from my chair I put out my light and flew to the window. The coach drew up and stopped next door. I saw a gentleman descend and step briskly across the pavement to the neighboring stoop. The figure he presented was not that of the man I had seen enter the night before. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 The Mrs. Van Burnham Late as it was when I retired, 
I was up betimes in the morning, as soon, in fact, as the papers were distributed. The tribune lay on the stoop. Eagerly I seized it up. Eagerly I read it. From its headlines you may judge what it has to say about the murder. A startling discovery in the Van Burnham mansion in Gramercy Park. A young girl found there, lying dead under an overturned cabinet. Evidences that she was murdered before it was pulled down upon her. Thought by some to be Mrs. Howard Van Burnham. A fearful crime involved in an impenetrable mystery. What Mr. Van Burnham says about it, he does not recognize the woman as his wife. So, so, it was his wife they were talking about. I had not expected that. Well, well, no wonder the girls look startled and concerned. And I paused to recall what I had heard about Howard Van Burnham's marriage. It had not been a fortunate one. His chosen bride was pretty enough, but she had not been bred into the ways of fashionable society, and the other members of the family had never recognized her. The father especially had cut his son dead since his marriage, and had even gone so far as to threaten to dissolve the partnership in which they were all involved. Worse than this, there had been rumors of a disagreement between Howard and his wife. They were not always on good terms, and opinions differed as to which was the most at fault. So much for what I knew of these two parties mentioned. Reading the article at length, I learned that Mrs. Van Burnham was missing, that she had left Haddam for New York the day before, her husband, and had not since been heard from. Howard was confident, however, that the publicity given to her disappearance by the papers would bring immediate news of her. The effect of the whole article was to raise grave doubts as to the candor of Mr. Van Burnham's assertions, and I am told that in some of the less scrupulous papers, these doubts were not only expressed, but actual surmises ventured upon as to the identity between him and the person whom I had seen enter the house with the young girl. As for my own name, it was blazoned forth in anything but a gratifying manner. I was spoken of in one paper, a kind friend told me this, as the prying Miss Amelia, as if my prying had not given the police their only clue to the identification of the criminal. The New York world was the only paper that treated me with any consideration. The young man with the small head and beady eyes was not awed by me for nothing. He mentioned me as the clever Miss Butterworth, whose testimony is likely to be of so much value in this very interesting case. It was the world I handed the Mrs. Van Burnham when they came downstairs to breakfast. It did justice to me, and not too much injustice to him. They read it together, their two heads plunged deeply into the paper, so that I could not watch their faces. But I could see the sheet shake, and I noticed that their social veneer was not as yet laid on so thickly that they could hide their real terror and heartache when they finally confronted me again. "'Did you read? Have you seen this horrible account?' quavered Caroline as she met my eye. "'Yes, and I now understand why you felt such anxiety yesterday. Did you know your sister-in-law, and do you think she could have been beguiled into your father's house in that way?' It was Isabella who answered. We never have seen her and know little of her. 
but there is no telling what such an uncultivated person as she might do. But that our good brother Howard ever went in there with her is a lie, isn't it, Caroline? A base and malicious lie. Of course it is. Of course. Of course. You don't think the man you saw was Howard, do you, dear Miss Butterworth? Dear, oh dear. I am not acquainted with your brother, I returned. I have never seen him but a few times in my life. You know he has not been a very frequent visitor at your father's house lately. They looked at me wistfully, so wistfully. Say it was not Howard, whispered Caroline, stealing up a little nearer to my side. And we will never forget it, murmured Isabella, and what I am obliged to say was not her society manner. I hope to be able to say it, was my short rejoinder, made difficult by the prejudices I had formed. When I see your brother I may be able to decide at a glance that the person I saw entering your house was not he. Yes, oh yes, do you hear that, Isabella? Miss Butterworth will save Howard yet. Oh, you dear old soul, I could almost love you. This was not agreeable to me. I, a dear old soul? A term to be applied to a butter woman, not to a butter worth. I drew back, and their sentimentalities came to an end. I hope their brother Howard is not the guilty man the papers make him out to be. But if he is, the Mrs. Van Burnham's fine phrase, We could almost love you, will not deter me from being honest in the matter. Mr. Grice called early, and I was glad to be able to tell him that the gentleman who visited him the night before did not recall the impression upon me made by the other. He received the communication quietly, and from his manner I judged that it was more or less what he expected. But who can be a correct judge of a detective's manner, especially one so foxy and imperturbable as this one? I longed to ask who his visitor was, but I did not dare. Or rather, to be candid in little things that you may believe me in great, I was confident he would not tell me, so I would not compromise my dignity by a useless question. He went after five minutes' stay, and I was about to turn my attention to household affairs when Franklin came in. His sisters jumped like puppets to meet him, Oh, they cried, for one's thinking and speaking alike. Have you found her? His silence was so eloquent that he did not need to shake his head. But you will before the day is out, protested Caroline. It is too early yet, added Isabella. I never thought I would be glad to see that woman under any circumstances, continued the former. But I believe now that if I saw her coming up the street on Howard's arm, I should be happy enough to rush out and, and... Give her a hug, finished the more impetuous Isabella. It was not what Caroline meant to say, but she accepted the emendation with just the slightest air of deprecation. They were both evidently much attached to Howard, and ready in his trouble to forgive and forget everything. I began to like them again. Have you read the horrid papers? And how is Papa this morning? And what shall we do to save Howard? Now flew in rapid questions from their lips, and feeling that it was but natural that they should have their little say, I sat down in my most uncomfortable chair, 
and waited for the first ebullitions to exhaust themselves. Instantly Mr. Van Burnham took them by the arm and led them away to a distant sofa. "'Are you happy here?' he asked, in what he meant for a very confidential tone. "'But I can hear as readily as a deaf person anything which is not meant for my ears.' "'Oh, she's kind enough,' whispered Caroline, "'but so stingy. "'Do take us where we can get something to eat.' "'She puts all her money into China. "'Such plates, and so little on them.' "'At these expressions, uttered with all the emphasis a whisper will allow, "'I just hugged myself in the corner. "'The dear giddy things! "'But they should see, they should see!' I fear it was Mr. Van Burnham who now spoke. I shall have to take my sisters from under your kind care today. Their father needs them and has, I believe, already engaged rooms for them at the plaza. I am sorry, I replied, but surely they will not leave till they have had another meal with me. Postpone your departures, young ladies, till after luncheon, and you will greatly oblige me. We may never meet so agreeably again. They fidgeted, which I had expected, and cast secret looks of almost comic appeal at their brother, but he pretended not to see them, being disposed for some reason to grant my request. Taking advantage of the momentary hesitation that ensued, I made them all three my most conciliatory bow, and said as I retreated behind the portiere, I shall give my orders for luncheon now. Meanwhile, I hope the young ladies will feel perfectly free in my house. All that I have is at their command, and was gone before they could protest. When I next saw them, they were upstairs in my front room. They were seated together in the window, and looking miserable enough to have a little diversion. Going to my closet, I brought out a bandbox. It contained my best bonnet. "'Young ladies, what do you think of this?' I inquired, taking the bonnet out and carefully placing it on my head. I myself consider it a very becoming article of headgear, but their eyebrows went up in a scarcely complimentary fashion. "'You don't like it?' I remarked. "'Well, I think a great deal of young girls' taste. I shall send it back to Madame Moore's tomorrow.' "'I don't think much of Madame Moore,' observed Isabella. And after Paris, do you like La Mole better, I inquired, bobbing my head to and fro before the mirror, the better to conceal my interest in the venture I was making. I don't like any of them but Diabney, returned Isabella. She charges twice what La Mole does. Twice? What are these girls' purses made of? Or rather their father's. But she has the chic we are accustomed to see in French millinery. I shall never go anywhere else. We were recommended to her in Paris, put in Caroline more languidly. Her interest was only half engaged by this frivolous topic. But did you never have one of La Mole's hats? I pursued taking down a hand mirror, ostensibly to get the effect of my bonnet in the back, but really to hide my interest in their unconscious faces. Never, retorted Isabella, I would not patronize the thing. Nor you, I urged carelessly, turning towards Caroline. No, I have never been inside her shop. Then whose is, I began and stopped. 
a detective doing the work I was would not give away the object of his question so recklessly. Then who is, I corrected, the best person after Diabne? I never can pay her prices. I should think it wicked. Oh, don't ask us, protested Isabella. We have never made a study of the best bonnet maker. At present we wear hats. And having thus thrown their youth in my face, they turned away to the window again, not realizing that the middle-aged lady they regarded with such disdain had just succeeded in making them dance to her music most successfully. The luncheon I ordered was elaborate, for I was determined that the Mrs. Van Burnham should see that I knew how to serve a fine meal, and that my plates were not always better than my viands. I had invited in a couple of other guests, so that I should not seem to have put myself out for the two young girls, and as they were quiet people like myself, the meal passed most decorously. When it was finished, the Misses Caroline and Isabella had lost some of their consequential airs, and I really think the deference that they have since showed me is due more to the surprise they felt at the perfection of this dainty luncheon than to any considerate appreciation of my character and abilities. They left at three o'clock, still without news of Mrs. Van Burnham, and being positive by this time that the shadows were thickening about the family, I saw them depart with some regret and a positive feeling of commiseration. Had they been reared to a proper reverence for their elders, how much more easy it would have been to see the earnestness in Caroline and the affectionate impulses in Isabella. The evening paper added but little to my knowledge. Great disclosures were promised, but no hint given of their nature. The body at the morgue had not been identified by any of the hundreds who had viewed it, and Howard still refused to acknowledge it as that of his wife. The morrow was awaited with anxiety. So much for the public press. At twelve o'clock at night I was seated again in my window. The house next door had been lighted since ten, and I was in momentary expectation of its nocturnal visitor. He came promptly at the hour set, alighted the carriage with a bound, shut the carriage door with a slam, and crossed the pavement with cheerful celerity. His figure was not so positively like, nor yet so positively unlike, that of the supposed murderer, that I could definitely say, this is he, or this is not he, and I went to bed puzzled, and not a little burdened, by a sense of the responsibility imposed upon me in this matter. And so passed the day between the murder and the inquest. End of chapter 8